0: Today's reading is John 1, 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was with God in the beginning. Everything came into being through the Word, and without the Word, nothing came into being. What came into being through the Word was life, and the life was the light for all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness doesn't extinguish the light. A man named John was sent from God. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light so that through him everyone would believe in the light. He himself wasn't the light, but his mission was to testify concerning the light. The true light that shines on all people was coming into the world. The light was in the world and the world came into being through the light, but the world didn't recognize the light. The light came to his own people and his own people didn't welcome him. But those who did welcome him, those who believed in his name, he authorized to become God's children, born not from blood, nor from human desire or passion, but born from God. The word became flesh and made his home among us. We have seen his glory, glory like that of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. John testified about him, crying out, This is the one of whom I said, he who comes after me is greater than me because he existed before me. From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. As the law was given through Moses, so grace and truth came into being through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. God, the only Son, who is at the Father's side, has made God known. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: To become a Christian is to come into a certain relationship with God. It is also to come into a certain relationship with a book. The Bible becomes not just a collection of writings produced in the ancient Near East and Greco-Roman Palestine. The Bible becomes for us the Word of God for us. This is an astonishing claim. The Bible, the Word of God, for us. This means that if you want to hear God speak, you are to take up and read. Tole lege, that's the Latin for take up and read. At least, Scripture is the first and the primary place where we hear the voice of God speak to us. The problem, of course, is that scripture is difficult to understand, isn't it? And I don't think saying that is particularly controversial. In fact, if I can personify scripture for a moment, scripture knows itself to be difficult. The second letter of Peter says that Paul's letters are difficult to understand, which is astonishing because the second letter of Peter is by far one of the most difficult and obscure letters in the New Testament. There are basically uh, three ways that people have read the Bible over the past 200 years. Each way deals with the difficulty of reading the Bible as the Word of God for us. The first way is what we might call academic reading. Academic reading says that the Bible is difficult to read Because it's a collection of ancient writings in ancient languages. Writings from a different time and different culture. Produced before the scientific revolution. Before democracy. Before electricity or the internet or even coffee. Coffee. Academic reading says to understand the Bible. You must understand what it meant. In its own historical, cultural and linguistic context. All the tools of critical scholarship are brought to bear on the Bible. Textual criticism, historical criticism, social scientific criticism, literary criticism, and so on. If we are on uh, one side of a large historical gap separating us from the Bible, these are the tools that help us build the bridge back to be able to identify with the original audiences. It almost goes without saying that the Bible would be largely inaccessible to us without academic reading. At its best, academic reading makes the Bible accessible to us. It opens up our ears so we can hear the Bible speak in its own voice. At its worst, academic reading assumes a view of reality that is incompatible with the Bible, the view that God does not actually make a difference in the world. That's largely a problem in biblical studies in the academy. In the church, at its worst, academic reading makes interpretation an endless exercise that never comes to faithful expression in the life of an individual or a church community. The second way of reading the Bible is called application reading. This is perhaps the way of reading the Bible you are most familiar with. If academic reading focuses on what the text meant, application reading focuses on what the text means today. In theory, academic reading and application reading are a two-stage process. The historical difficulty of reading the Bible is overcome in academic reading so that you can focus on the meaning for your life in application reading. In practice, however, the two are often separated. So that academic reading never quite comes to the question of meaning for your life today, and application reading never quite gets to the complexity and depth that is in Scripture. The question application reading asks is, how does this passage apply to my life? And in order to answer that question, you try to extract some truth or principle from the biblical text, a principle broad enough or general enough to transfer into meaning for today. At its best, application reading helps us become more like Jesus. For example, you might take welcoming the stranger or caring for the poor as biblical principles to live by. At its worst, application reading becomes self-absorbed, a way of projecting your wants and needs on Scripture, so that you come away from Scripture with nothing but what you already had. Or worse. The Bible becomes a way to justify yourself and the views you already held. As a consequence, the Bible becomes boring, a travesty. Some of you, perhaps, are inclined to look down on academic reading. You've seen it associated with cold, dispassionate approach to the Bible and to God. Others of you may be inclined to look down on application reading, since you've seen how easy it is to neglect the richness and complexity and depth of Scripture. But I want to suggest that both academic and application reading are problematic. Even when they're done together, they leave something more to be desired. The first problem with both of these ways of reading is that we remain in control during the entire reading process A pastor who mentored me in college used to joke about how the disciples might have responded to Jesus after he preached the Sermon on the Mount. Thanks for that sermon, Jesus. We'll pray about it and get back to you. Why, after all, should we get to decide what does and does not apply to our lives? Both academic and application reading all too easily become clever ways of putting off what the Bible requires of us faithful response to the word that God speaks. We need a way to read the Bible that makes it possible to be surprised, if nothing else, to hear something we do not want to hear, and to repent, to enter more fully into the life that God offers us. The second problem with academic reading and application reading is that they assume the wrong view of humanity. They think a human being is basically a homo sapiens, a being that thinks. They assume the primary difficulty with the Bible is that we are prone to misunderstand it, that we will think about it wrongly. And so with some work, we are told that we can arrive at the basic truths and principles to think about and then after thinking about them to live by. But this assumes we already basically know what it is to be human, what the world is, who God is, where we are from, and where we are going. In fact, I don't think we know those things, not in advance of what God tells us. One theologian, quite helpfully, I think, calls human beings, instead of homo sapiens, the homo neurons neurandus, the storytelling being whose story must be told. That's a different definition of what it means to be human. Human beings do not need a list of propositions and principles to find their way in the world. We need a map that is far more full, far more detailed. We need to discover what it means to be human before God, what it means to indwell God's world, and for that we need a story, a narrative. We need a way to read the Bible that makes it possible to see that in the Bible our own story is told, your story is told and it is primarily a story about God. There is still a more excellent way. The third way of reading is what I call expectation reading. If academic and application reading assume our primary difficulty with the Bible is misunderstanding, expectation reading assumes the primary difficulty with the Bible is our own resistance to the grace and love of God that we encounter there, Our difficulty with the Bible is actually a difficulty with ourselves and with God. To paraphrase the Gospel of John, we are more inclined to darkness than to light. Even if we were contemporaries with the Apostles, even if we had all the historical understanding we could possibly want, we would still have a difficult time with the Bible because through the Bible we enter what Karl Barth calls the strange new world the world of God. Expectation reading says, in the Bible is a new world, God, God's sovereignty, God's glory, God's incomprehensible love, not the history of humanity, but the history of God. Not the virtues of humanity, but the virtues of the one who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Not human standpoints, but the standpoint of God. Again, words of Karl Barth. You will find in the Bible only what you seek. This is what separates expectation reading from application reading. If you only seek truths or principles to apply to your life, you'll find nothing more. But let me remind you again, the Bible is the Word of God for us. Expectation reading seeks that which is beyond yourself, beyond your experience. And when you read the Bible, seeking what is beyond yourself, you just might find you encounter the gospel and glory of God. But you must know, such reading requires faith, which means repentance, hope, which means patience, and love, which means a desire for God. I remember clearly one time this kind of expectation reading happened to me. I was 17 years old, It was late on a summer afternoon. The light was pouring in through the window of my dining room, and I was sitting at the table, weeping. I had read the Gospel of John from beginning to end for the first time, and I wept. I wept because in it I caught a glimpse of the glory of Jesus. I wept because I encountered Uh, the beauty and the promise of a life of faith. I received those tears as a gift from God. And Just a few months ago, I spoke on the phone with Pastor Ted. Uh, Pastor Ted is a man who became a friend and a spiritual father to me when I was in college. In our two- or three-hour conversation, we got to talking about the Gospels. Ted told me, Son, this is going to sound strange to you, but I think John is the Lord's favorite gospel. And then he said, I mean, in the beginning was the word, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. And I could hear him on the other line, begin to weep. Maybe Ted is right. If you want a practical application from the sermon, there's that word again, application. Read the Gospel of John from beginning to end as many times as it takes until you weep because you've encountered God. This sermon is part of a series called This Is My Story, where each preacher reads a passage of Scripture through the lens of their own story. And in truth, the Gospel of John tells the story of us all. The day I read and wept, I discovered, or rather, God revealed the story that makes sense out of my life. Without knowing it, I stumbled into the strange new world of the Bible, a world where grace and truth overflow, where glory is as tangible and bright as the light that poured in through my window that day, a world where the Word of God becomes flesh, makes His home here among us, bringing us to such intimate knowledge of God and our own humanity that we are said to abide in God To live in God. I want to talk about three things we discover in the prologue to John's Gospel about this strange new world of the Bible. The first discovery is that everything begins with God. The first words of the Gospel of John echo the creation story in Genesis in the beginning. John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was with God in the beginning. This text is perhaps uh, the closest we ever come to what Martin Luther calls the naked God, the unclothed glory of God that mortals are unable to see and still live. The un- uh, before all creation... Before the fathomless deeps of the ocean, the furthest reaches of the heavens were formed. Before even a single human thought about God was formed, there was God in the beginning. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The fullness of love and life and glory there within God before anything was made. Christians are used to speaking about creation ex nihilo, creation that comes out of nothing at all, And it's true, the material world is not eternal. God made all that exists. But we should also speak about creation ex gloria Deo, creation that comes out of the glory of God. Again, we are reminded of Genesis when John writes, through the word, all things were made. Without the word, nothing was made. Every word that the God of Israel spoke in Genesis brought forth creation. God said the word, let there be light, and behold, creation responded with light. The Gospel of John identifies that creative word that God spoke with a person, with the word, the means by which all things were created, which means all creation bears the signature of this word. Appreciate how strange this is. In the ancient world, the world was thought to be eternal, without a beginning or an end. The whole of creation had no direction and no story. Likewise, we are often told that whatever order came out of chaos is the result of random, arbitrary, impersonal forces, which means that life in the universe is basically meaningless, apart from whatever meaning you can scrounge up or make up and apply to our lives, to your lives. There's that word again, apply. But here in the gospel, we find a beginning, which means all of creation is full of glory and life and has a direction, a story. All this means that God is the beginning. God is the beginning that begins all beginnings. And if God alone is in the beginning, then we always begin in the middle. We do not get to begin in the beginning. Our knowledge, our stories, our lives are dependent on what has come before us. And insofar as every story has a beginning, a middle, and an end, your understanding of your life will be inadequate unless you realize this. God is the beginning of your life. You cannot know your own beginning by thinking back to it. At least in part because you don't remember it. And probably your first memory isn't a great place to start, if you think about that. Mine was um, like picking up a rock and putting it in my mouth. my mom saying, don't do that. Um... But if you think about it, and to be actually a little bit more truthful, uh, you weren't even there for your beginning. Your parents were. You always learn your story by trusting what others tell you. You learn who your parents are by trusting what they tell you. What I'm saying is that you learn the true beginning of your story by trusting what God has told you. God alone is in the beginning, and therefore your story begins with God. This means that the story of your life is not primarily a story about you. It's a story about God. The second discovery is that Jesus embodies the truth about God and humanity. It's not until the 14th verse of the prologue that we find out exactly what, or rather who, this Word is, this Word that existed with God in the beginning, this Word that is God, this Word through whom all things were created. This Word is the one who we know as the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're told in John that this Word became flesh and made His home among us. If the Word had not become flesh, God would have remained unspeakable shrouded in mystery, a glory so majestic and bright that no mortal could see God and live. But the Word that is God becomes human, fully human, a Jewish man who lived in the first century in the land of Israel when it was under Roman rule. And John tells us that no one has ever seen God, but if you see Jesus who is at the Father's side always. He makes God known to us. In effect, John says, if you have seen Jesus, you have seen the Father. When you see Jesus turn water into wine to prevent social embarrassment at a wedding, you see the glory of God. When you see Jesus speak compassionately to a Samaritan woman, you see the glory of God. When you see Jesus suffering and crucified, yes, there too you see the glory of God. Indeed, perhaps the most startling way the truth about God that Jesus embodies is revealed to us in John is in the cross. Elsewhere in the New Testament, the death and humiliation of Jesus precedes his glorification in the resurrection. But the Gospel of John interprets the humiliation of the cross and the sufferings of Jesus as his glory, as his coronation, as king. The death of Jesus is referred to as the hour in which the Son of Man is glorified. And John interprets the Isianic vision of the glory of the Lord being seen by all flesh as the lifting up of the Son of Man on the cross. Much more could be said about this. It changes our whole view of what glory is. But this is what I want to point to. The grace and glory of the words spoken of in the prologue is seen most clearly in Jesus' giving of himself in the cross. In Jesus' sufferings, we find God's suffering, God's glory, God's gracious self-giving, that we might receive the life of God. Indeed, this is what the prologue points us to when it says the Word became flesh and lived among us. We have seen His glory. Remember what glory is. From His fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. In Jesus, we also discover the truth about our humanity. Mary Ann my Thompson, writes, By becoming flesh... The Word of God enters this sphere of mortality and frailty and makes it possible for those born of the flesh to become those born of God. She quotes the second-century theologian, Arrhenius, who says, "...the Word of God our Lord Jesus Christ did through his transcendent love become what we are, that he might bring us to see to be what he is himself." When we look at Jesus, we must see God, but we must also see humanity, our destiny. As John elsewhere says, beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. When you look at Jesus, you discover what you are and begin to find out what you might become. The third discovery is that our lives become witnesses to the grace and glory of Jesus. You might have noticed when the profound words of John's prologue were being read here this morning, it seemed somewhat... uh, disjointed shall we say you have this wonderful profound theological affirmations about the word of God and then it's interrupted by uh, now there was a guy sent from God his name was John I think John you're breaking up the flow man Just uh, if I were the editor of the gospel I would have moved these parts about John elsewhere thank God I'm not The placement of John the Baptist in the prologue shows us something vital about who we are. Every time John the Baptist is mentioned in this gospel, he is bearing witness about Jesus. He bears witness about the light so that people would trust in the light. John bears witness to the word become flesh in Jesus by proclaiming, This is the one of whom I said, He who comes after me is greater than me because he existed before me. You notice that John is beginning his story with the one who existed before him, with God. John bears witness later to the Jewish leaders from Jerusalem, saying, I'm not the Messiah, I'm not Elijah, I'm not the prophet, I'm only a voice preparing the way of the Lord. John's role as witness to Jesus suggests that the story of your life can be told in such a way that it bears witness to the glory and grace of Jesus. And when the story of your life is told from the beginning, it begins with God, remember, and to the end that it bears witness to Jesus, it may be a different kind of story than you're used to telling about yourself. You see, if you tell the story of your life as a tale of successes and failures you will be the main character. The measure you use to determine what's significant enough to say about yourself will almost always be a human measure, and God will be an afterthought. But the story of your life, the story of your past, may be transfigured when you learn to tell it as a story that bears witness to Jesus. It's true that the brute facts of the past cannot be changed what was said or left unsaid, what was done or left undone. But we can change how we remember the past. Reflecting on St. Augustine's autobiography, theologian Ben Myers writes, in the act of remembering his own life, he discovers the ever-present grace of God, a grace that was never apparent at the time as the events were actually occurring, but has now become the meaning of everything that happened. The past is not fixed and finished. The past can be converted. The past can be attuned to God's presence. One day, you will discover the truth about yourself. That is called judgment. One day, you will find that your life is and always was about the grace and glory of Jesus. That is called justification. One day you will find the glory and life of Jesus completely reflected in your own when at last you see him face to face. That is called resurrection. This is where the sermon was going to end. But life happens, and death happens. Yesterday afternoon, I learned that um, Pastor Ted passed away. He's a man I dearly loved, a man whose love and life I'm grateful to God for. And Ted's life bore witness to the gospel and glory of Jesus I met Ted when he was retired, 68 years old. He volunteered at the Elm Street Rescue Mission in Santa Cruz. At the mission, he would uh, put his arm around some homeless guy, uh, you know, men with neck tattoos who had done time in San Quentin, men who were hardened, and he'd pull them close to him and kiss him on the cheek and say, come here, son, I'm Greek. And they received it. They received his love because it was genuine. It was full of life and delight. Ted told me that there were two pivotal moments in his adult life. One of those moments was seeing an image of Mother Teresa laying next to a dying man in a ditch. And Ted thought, I want my life to look like hers. For at least the last decade of his life, Ted ministered to homeless men and women at a mission to the elderly at a local geriatric facility with no chaplain, and to people struggling with drug and alcohol addiction at Teen Challenge. The second of those pivotal moments for Ted was embracing the fact that he was Greek and to show his love for people in a particularly Greek way, hence all the kissing. Anyone who knew Ted knew that um, the life and love and delight they saw in him was a sign of the love, life, and delight in Jesus. Ted was always talking about Jesus. Actually, talking about is too weak of a word. He was always bearing witness to Jesus. Ted had received from the fullness of grace and truth in Jesus and passed it on to me and to many others. His was a kind of love that somehow drove away shame, A kind of delight that presented itself in gifts of time, listening, wisdom, involvement in your life, even when you didn't ask for it, and money. A kind of overflowing life was Ted's that drew me and many others closer and closer to the source of life, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God.